So go ahead, and if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead. We're going to look at Luke chapter 23. We'll focus in on verses 32 to 43 this morning. This, I was reflecting on this is Palm Sunday. If you were here last year, if your memory is really good, you'll remember my message, which I know you really all remember my message from a year ago, right? You're probably wondering, did I remember my message from a year ago? We talked about last year in, in Palm Sunday is this incredible, you know, kind of culmination. Jesus comes in Jerusalem, and, you know, Robbie mentioned earlier in the service, they're, they're laying palm branches down as a form of worship to Jesus, and there's this big victorious celebration as the king comes into Jerusalem. But there's an, there's a, an understory that's going on there. What they're celebrating about Jesus is not what's true of Jesus. They're celebrating in their mind that our political Messiah has come. The one that's going to overthrow Rome and reestablish Israel's kingdom on the earth. So they're thinking, we're finally going to be free from this Roman oppression. But that's not why Jesus came. Jesus came to free humanity from sin, not from the Roman oppression. It was a much bigger plan that Jesus had. So even though they celebrated him, they didn't even realize what they were celebrating because they wanted him to be a political Messiah, and he wasn't. It's very interesting. As you and I, you go through this next week, and we're going to get to Friday, you go through what we call Passion Week or Holy Week, and you get to the cross, and at a very personal level, you and I discover something very interesting in a story that unfolds at the cross. Jesus hanging on the cross, and you know the story. We'll read it in a moment. Jesus has... Two criminals hanging on either side of him. There are two sides to the cross of Jesus. And it's interesting when we look at the story, two men in the same situation, guilty of their crime, pending death as they're hanging on the cross, yet one of them has this amazing capacity to see who Jesus is, and the other, even in the weakest, darkest, difficultest moment of his life, can't see Jesus. And this morning, I want us to reflect, what side of the cross do you and I find ourselves on today? What view of Jesus do we have? And is it the view that God wants us to have of him today? Because it's possible for you and I to experience Jesus, to see him, to even potentially know him, and yet still miss who he is. So let me read this passage, and then we'll walk through it together. So starting in verse 32, Luke 23. It says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him uh, which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for what what we're getting, what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. This is an amazing conversation that's happening. I don't think we can fully appreciate it because none of us have hung on a cross. But can you imagine, this is the dialogue that's going on when three men are hanging on a cross, the the worst possible way to die, the most humiliating way to die, and this is the conversation that's happening. One of them is cursing Jesus. And one of them is embracing him. 
I want to start with the, the, really the confused side of the cross, the confused side of our view of Jesus, which the first, the criminal that we see here who doesn't quite get it, what his, his lens is that he's looking through and how he sees Jesus and how skewed it is and sometimes how you and I find ourselves looking at Jesus that way. The first thing you look at verse 39 is that the confused side uh, that sees Jesus this way sees through the lens of denial. It says in verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Now just think about this for a moment. If there's any, ever going to be a moment where you're finally broken, there's ever going to be a moment when you look at your life and in reality and you see clearly that you're not perfect and you're, then you're, and you're broken, it's right before you die. You're hanging there exposed, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. You're guilty by the, the law. You know that you're guilty. And so you think, finally, I got to give it up here. Finally, I have to admit that I am broken. But this man s- hangs there in denial. And instead of basically admitting his wrong, even though he's, been, he's guilty of it, what is he doing? He's insulting Jesus. He's cursing at Jesus because he's in denial of his, the own reality of his life. He's deflecting off of himself the guilty man onto the innocent man next to him. You and I have to be careful because sometimes, sometimes even though we know that there's issues in our life, we will never fully face our fatal condition. That we are broken and that we have sinned. And because of that, we will deflect off of ourselves and we will live in this reality will think, I, I know I have sinned, but it's not that bad. How many times have we said that? And then we grade ourselves on the curve, right? We always find somebody else who's a worse sinner than we are to make ourselves feel better. Don't we do that? It's not that bad. Every sin is bad because sin is what leads to death. And if you and I understand that, that means that we're all in the same condition. There's that moment where you and I have to look in the spiritual mirror and we have to not close our eyes. We have to open them and look squarely at ourselves to see what's there and then see clearly enough to see who Jesus is. I've struggled with allergies most of my life. In fact, right now I'm actually doing really good, but I have to kind of take antihistamines and 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 I used to break out in hives all the time like severe hives, like ER-level hives, you know, that you got to go and you have to get, you know, Benadryl and epinephrine and the whole nine yards. And so I've gone through lots and lots of cycles of that. And one of those periods of time was a number of years ago when, when Kim and I were, I think we were in Ventura, and, and uh, I had a reaction to something. I went to bed that night, and I knew I would have normal reaction, so I'm taking, like, literally, like, three or four antihistamines before I go to bed. It's like this whole process. And so I'm in bed, and I, I wake up. It's probably about one in the morning, and I can tell I'm having a pretty strong reaction, and I can tell my, my face is kind of swelling a little bit. And, but I've experienced this before, and so in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I can just weather this. I can get through this. It's not that big of a deal. And, and so finally, I'm, I'm getting uncomfortable. I thought, ah, I'll go to, go to the bathroom. So I went in, and I closed the door, and I turned on the light. And I looked at myself in the mirror. And everybody remember, uh, what is it, the movie Hitch with Will, Will Smith? Remember? I looked 10 times worse than he did. And I almost scared myself. And so I come out of the bathroom. And Kim's been, Kim was used to it at this time, too. And so the lights were, it was, they were off in the room. And I said, I went over to her side of it. I said, honey, I said, I think I need to go to the ER. And she's kind of like, really? You know? And so then I turned the light on. She's like, oh, you know, like scared. She seriously, I looked like some kind of alien. My entire face, every square inch of my face had ballooned up. My eyes, I could barely open my eyes. 
And so then even when we went to the ER, I remember, you know, you go in and the, the triage nurse comes out to assess, you know, what's going on. And so literally, not, I'm not joking, she opens the door that goes back into the ER and she steps out. She goes, who has, oh, you have hives, don't you? And I said, yeah. Do you think? And even at that point, it was so funny. I got into the ER and I, and I got on a gurney and, and they're, you know, they're injecting me with stuff and they called the entire ER staff over. You got to see this. So I'm laying there, and literally there's like seven or eight like doctors and nurses like, wow, yeah, we've never seen a case this bad before. It really was that bad. But before I turned the lights on, in my own mind, I thought, it's bad, but it's not that bad. I, I, can, I can handle this. I, I can make it this. I don't need to go to the, I don't want to get Kim out of bed. I don't want to do this. It was that bad. How many times in our life do you and I look at our sin and think, Oh, it's not, it's not that bad. Let the Holy Spirit turn the light on. Go up to a friend and confess your sin and say, is it that bad? And let them in all honesty say, yeah, it's that bad. And you and I have to stop living in denial of that. Second thing that's true from this side and this lens that is confused about our view of Jesus is that you and I have a tendency to look through the lens of doubt. So not only does he hurl insults at Jesus, but then he says, aren't you the Messiah? In other words, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying that you're the all-powerful Savior, Messiah that's come to save us. And it's almost mocking when he's saying it because he doesn't believe it for a moment. He's not believing who Jesus is. He's doubting that Jesus has the capacity to do anything to change Jesus' situation or their situations. He's in complete doubt of the Jesus' capacity to do anything. And sometimes I know I've walked through seasons in my life where I, I have this underlying pessimism towards Jesus. And it's not this outward hurling insults at Jesus, but there's this underlying pessimism that thinks, can things really change? Can that really be different in my life? Am I ever going to get beyond that? And because of, there's, a, there's this underlying pessimism and doubt that kind of follows me through seasons of my life. And, and when, I, when I, I know I love Jesus, I want to follow him, but there's this side of me that's like, is it real? Are you really truly who you say you are? Does it mean anything? Is there ever going to be any moment in my life where I know that change has happened? Am I ever going to be free from this? Anybody ever experienced something like that? See, we don't like to admit that we doubt. But part of the process of admitting doubt is actually healthy because we're finally honest with what we're really feeling. Because God is not threatened by our doubt or pessimism because he's bigger than that. But how many times in our life do you and I get to that point where you get down to the bottom level and you're like, you're questioning, I don't even know if I really believe this. It's okay to get there. It's not okay to, to flip it over into an insult to deflect off what's really going on, but it's okay to get to that place where you start to really question the core of who you are and who God is because it's at, at that point that you might actually first meet Jesus in your life. And I've watched people very close to me walk through difficult things in their marriage. I watched my sister have her husband cheat on her when she was six months pregnant. I watched her navigate what it is to have your entire world turned upside down, even to the core of who am I as a human being, who am I as a wife, who am I, who, who is God in all of this? And now to see her years later remarried, to see her life where it should be, to see her following Jesus, to see amazingly good things in her. She is not the woman that walks through life, oh yeah, I was cheated on. That's not her identity. I have another close friend who was also a pastor, 
and he had a moral failure. And it took him to the core of who he was. And it made him more honest in his life than I'd ever known in the history of our friendship together. And I remember sitting in a restaurant in Portland and him sitting across the table from me and looking me in the eye and he said, John, he goes, I can tell you honestly, I don't even know if God exists anymore. I think, oh my gosh, panic, no. He had to get down to the core of his doubt. Is God even real anymore? And it was at that place when he got to literally rock bottom that God began to work in his life and began to restore his marriage and began to restore his family. And this is like a, almost a decade ago. And now he is back in ministry again, but he leads differently. He lives, he lives more authentically and transparently because of what he's walked through. The other thing that's true of the confused side of how we see Jesus is we look through the lens of demand as well. So the last part of verse 39, it's amazing what this, this criminal says to Jesus. He says, save yourself and us. Anybody think that's slightly arrogant? These are criminals on the cross getting what they deserve, and he calls out to this innocent man, save yourself, and oh, by the way, save us too. And the way he's saying it, it's almost in this, this like demand or command form that he's expecting Jesus, the perfect one, the innocent one, to save him, the broken one, and the guilty one, and that Jesus somehow owes it to him. If you're going to save yourself, then you need to save us too. Like somehow this criminal felt like if Jesus was who he said he was, then he owed him something. And I think sometimes if you and I are not careful, we end up demanding things from Jesus. We somehow think that he owes us something. That, that because, I don't know where we get this idea that, that he owes us because of our good behavior. He owes us because we're not as bad as the next person. We come up with all these things of why we think that, that, that Jesus owes us something. The definition of grace is unmerited favor, which means you can't earn it, you don't deserve it, and God doesn't owe it to us. Jesus offers it willingly, but you and I can't demand it, and sometimes when we are in a difficult situation, we say these things, God, how can this be fair? In a sense, he's saying, hey, you owe this to me to save me. If you're going to get yourself off the cross, you've got to save me too. When have we done that where, you know, we, we think, well, you know, I haven't been as bad as the next person. And so God kind of owes me, you know, and, and bad stuff shouldn't happen to me. And, and failure shouldn't happen to people around me. And I shouldn't experience that because God owes me. He doesn't owe us. I can't tell you how many people I've sat down with over the years who've lived in that reality only to come to a place where they are bitter and upset and disappointed with God. Because somewhere in their mind, they've, they figured that God owed them something not realizing that God owes us nothing. That's the beauty of grace. He doesn't owe it to us, but he chooses to give it to us. That's the one side of the cross. That's the one place that you and I should not find ourselves, but sometimes we do. But then there's another side. There's the other side of the cross. There's the other lens by which you and I should be seeing Jesus to see him clearly for who he is, who can literally transform our lives. Look at verse 40, now talking about the other side, the other criminal. And the first thing that's true about this clear side of Jesus is that it comes through the lens of awareness. 
awareness of reality around us. So it says that the other criminal rebuked him and says this. He says, don't you fear God, he said. See, the other criminal could see clearly and acknowledged that in the midst of this, that God was present in Jesus. He's like, don't you have a respect? Can't you see this guy who's next to us who's innocent? Don't you know what's going on here? Can't you see clearly? This guy had an ability to see what the other man couldn't see. Now remember, he is hanging on the cross. He knows he's going to die. It's the darkest moment of his life. And he's saying, hey, don't you fear God? Don't you get it in this moment that there's something going on here that's bigger than even our own death? Something's happened here. I am seeing something that you need to see. What is he seeing that maybe you and I don't see? That God is present in the most darkest moments of our life? That he is present in life and death? That he is present in the midst of failure? He is, he is present in the midst of when we either perceived or reality are the victim? God is present. He's saying, don't you acknowledge that God's up to something? Can't you see what's going on around you? And I think sometimes you and I forget that. You and I forget, we think that when bad things happen, that God's on a lunch break. That he's somehow missed it in his sovereignty somewhere down the line. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, I I was out to lunch that day. I missed it. Sorry. That's not the way God works. Because bad stuff happens doesn't mean that God's not present. God is always present. And he was there on the cross with both those criminals. But for some of us, what happens is when difficulties happen and failure occurs and and tragedy happens, what begins to happen in us is everything that we go to for comfort, everything that we go to insulate ourselves from the brokenness around us or in us is stripped away. And then a wonderful thing happens. All that's left is you and Jesus. That's what happened to this criminal. He is literally almost physically naked. He's, on a, pub, he's a public spectacle, knowing he's going to die. He's going to be, in a sense, tortured to death. There is no place to run. There is no, no, nowhere to hide. There is no comfort. All he has is him and this innocent man hanging next to him. And he acknowledges that God is present, that God is there. And for some of us, that's the first step in understanding who Jesus is. Even in the midst of our brokenness, failure, and pain, and devastation, and difficulty, God is present. And going on in the story, look at verse 40. The other thing that's true of this clear lens that we see Jesus through is we see it through the lens of humility. It goes on, he says, since you are under the same sentence, or um, we are, you are under the same sentence, he goes, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. He is saying to the other criminal, don't you get this? We are guilty. He's not but we're absolutely guilty, exposed. We can't cover it up. We can't deny it. We can't smoke screen it. We can't put a mask on. We can't be the hypocrite. We're exposed. What is that? That's humility. Humility has an accurate view of itself. This man had a completely accurate view. He knew he was guilty. There was no denying it. There was no hiding from it. And because of that, because he could see clearly of who he was, he could see clearly who Jesus was because he was willing to acknowledge his pain, his guilt, his crime, that he was guilty. Sometimes that's hard for you and I to truly admit the brokenness in our own life. We're, it's, we're easy and it's quick to, to go after other people and say, yeah, look at the brokenness in their life, but boy, it's hard for us to admit that. See, that's why we have a tendency to, to create this reality of faith or Christianity, which basically, the best way to describe it, it's like Photoshop faith. 
Photoshop is a program that is used to edit photos. You take a picture, and then you can make that picture look like anything you want it to be. You can take out all the blemishes. You can add in things. You can make it. And, and the reality of what was actually physically taken, that picture doesn't look anything like what is Photoshopped and the eventual outcome of it. And we do that with ourselves. We do that. You, you, look, you look in magazines. You look at models. You, you look on, on, on television. You look in real estate photos. There's the beautiful blue sky. It was fun. I saw this all the time. There's houses that are taking pictures of houses in Oregon, and it's pouring down rain, but when that thing comes out on the flyer, it's a blue sky. I know it's a lie. I live there. But that's what we want people to think. It's a, it's a Facebook faith. What does Facebook allow us to do? It allows us to create a highly edited version of ourselves. Because when was the last time you went on Facebook and saw someone confess all their sins? Usually don't. Usually it's the high points of their life. That's what ends up on Facebook. Why? Because that's what we want people to see. But humility says, no, I have a realistic view of who I am. I know my brokenness. I know what I've done. And when I have a clear view of who I am, then for the first time in my life I can see who Jesus is. That means we have to take away all those things that will edit us down so that we are left with just who we are, just like this criminal. When he hung there on that cross, he couldn't hide. And so he had to embrace humility. Third thing about the clear side of this lens that we look through and understand who Jesus is, is it looks through the lens of contrast. Verse 41 says, but this man, he says, but this man has done nothing. So he, he's hanging there, he sees his sin, he sees his brokenness, he sees his failure, his guilt, and then he also sees at the same time that Jesus has done nothing wrong. He sees the depth of his own sin and the height of Jesus' innocence. He sees, he sees the comparison. He knows that there's a difference between the two. It's not just three guilty guys hanging on some crosses. It's two guilty guys and one innocent guy. He can see the difference between himself and Jesus. And I think the question for you and I is, can we see clearly enough to notice there's a contrast between who we are and who Jesus wants us to be? The ultimate goal of what it means to follow Jesus is to be like him. That's the ultimate outcome. And for you and I to know that that's the ultimate outcome, we have to see the reality of who we are now, knowing there's a difference between who God wants us, where God wants us to become. John wrote it this way in 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. He says, But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. That you and I should look like Jesus. We should act like Jesus. People should see us and think there's something about Jesus that's similar to their life. Because we've encountered him. But just think about that for a moment. Who is the Jesus that you and I have come to define? This is the scary part. For some of us, being like Jesus is just very attainable. Why? Because Jesus is just simply a slightly better version of ourselves. We portray onto him what we hope to be someday, and it's only just a little bit better than where we are right now, not realizing that's why as a church we spent the last almost two years facing who Jesus is from the Gospels. Instead of coming up with our historic kind of Christianity, kind of idea of who we think Jesus is, let's go back to what Jesus said about himself, how he lived, how he taught, what he did, 
Because letting Jesus define himself helps us to see the contrast, the difference between who we are now and who ultimately God wants us to be. See, it's seeing him clearly. And for this, this, and we'll get to this, this story ends in an amazing way. But for the first time in this guy's life, he understood who God was, but it meant that he had to hang on a cross next to Jesus and face death. And for some of us, hopefully it never comes to that place. But we have some clarity before we get there. And then two other things about this clear lens or this clear sight of, of Jesus. The next lens is the lens of faith. Verse 42, it says, Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Here's what's pretty cool from what we can understand. You know, Palm Sunday, the week before, everyone's gathering in the streets. I mentioned earlier, there's this political reality of, you know, of Jesus the Messiah. He's going to come and save us from the Romans. He's going to reestablish the kingdom of Israel on earth, all that. That's not what this conversation's about. This guy sees it. He's saying, he knows he's about to die. He knows Jesus is about to die. And he says, when you come into your kingdom. Now, why would a guy who's about to die next to another guy who's about to die say, you're going to come into your kingdom unless he understood who Jesus was? Because he knew something about Jesus that everybody else seemed to have missed. That Jesus was not the king of the Jews, although that's the label they gave him. He was the king of all. He was the, the king on the throne of the kingdom of God. And because he saw that, he realized that, and he had faith to believe. He says, listen, when you and I die, whenever that's going to be, in the next hour, in the next two days, whenever it is, when you come into your kingdom, don't forget about me. Don't forget about this conversation we're having. Don't forget about me. Even though I know I'm a sinner, and I'm broken, and I've failed, and I'm guilty, and I'm exposed, don't forget about me. Remember me. He had this faith to be able to ask that. Do you and I have enough faith in our life in who Jesus is to actually trust him to do what you and I keep trying to do on our own? In other words, you and I say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but what do you really believe about him? You, you believe in him, but you believe in him in your brain. You believe in him from what you learned, but do you believe that he actually has power to change you or do you feel like he needs help along the way? See, that, that true faith knows that Jesus is the ultimate authority and expert, which means the transformation that needs to happen in my life doesn't come by my modification. It comes by his power through his spirit in my life that changes me. That's, that's the reality. See, we can work really hard at doing it on our own, and we'll call that Christianity, and Christianity becomes a burden and becomes tiresome and becomes guilt-driven because we keep trying. I'm going to be better next time. I'm not going to do this again. Yes, you are. Because it all comes down to you and your ability, and we don't have the ability. This guy's on a cross. He knows he can't change his circumstance. He can't get into the kingdom of God on his own. All he can do is trust that Jesus will remember him. Think about that in our own lives. What are you working so hard at right now to, to do the right thing in and trying to overcome sin on your own when you know that every time you keep trying, you end back at the same place again, over and over and over again? A couple months ago, Kim and I flirted with this idea. Let's do our own taxes this year. Just so you know, pastor or minister taxes are a little bit more complicated than average taxes because of the way that we're set up with IRS and all that kind of stuff. And so we've had a, an expert for years do our taxes. And so we thought, let's save money this year 
And so we got one of those online softwares, and Kim's kind of the, 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 the finance guru in our, in our family. And so she's, she's sitting there at her computer for hours, plugging in all the numbers, doing all this. And I love my wife. She, will, she never quits on anything. But when we were finally, like, she's talking through, I mean, it's asking this, and I don't know if it really takes this into consideration. And after probably days of her, like, like you know, bloodshot eyes working on the computer, she finally looks at me and she goes, we can't do this. In fact, John Cook, who's our tax guy, he's out in the valley. He's, he's excellent because he specializes in pastors. And she goes, we need to go see John. I'm like, okay, let's go. So in what we worked on hours and hours and for, you know, John did it in like mm, 20 minutes. Because he's an expert. He knows what he's doing. He's seen it before. And because of that, we can trust him. What are you working so hard on right now that you know that no matter how hard you try, it's never going to change anything? Only Jesus can change us. And that comes through surrendering to him. That comes through confessing our sin. That comes through being humble before him. It comes with owning our stuff. and saying, listen, I'm broken and I can't fix myself. We have to come to that place in our lives. And then the final thing, this is really important, and the worship team will join us as we conclude for, for communion in just a moment. But this is, this is where this whole story really culminates. So after all these insults are getting tossed at Jesus, and then this conversation is going on, Jesus replies in verse 43 and replies with this lens. It's the lens of intimacy. He says, then Jesus answered him. After he's made this request, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says this, he says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, when you and I read that, automatically we think, oh, paradise. Oh, you're going to go and you're going to be in heaven with Jesus and it's going to be wonderful. Now, that's part of it. But what you and I need to understand, what Jesus just said was really powerful. Jesus chose the word paradise because the word paradise is a Persian word and the meaning was a walled garden. He's saying this to a guy who understands. He said, today you're going to be with me in my garden. See, what, what the, the, the Persian kings used to do is they used to create these beautiful gardens. And if they wanted to show honor to one of their subjects, they would invite that subject to come into the garden and to spend time with them in this kind of sanctuary. They would walk in the garden with the subject. And this would be like, I mean, that would be like the thing of a lifetime. If you got to walk with the king in the garden, you know, in paradise, that's what it was called. That was this huge thing. So Jesus says to this broken down, guilty criminal hanging on the cross, today you will walk with me in my garden in a face-to-face reality of intimacy. That's incredible. What is Jesus referring back to? He's referring back to Adam and Eve. He's referring back to the Garden of Eden where there was paradise, where sin hadn't entered the equation yet. And the God of the universe used to come walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve and lived in a face-to-face reality. He's saying, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me face-to-face. Today you will be one of my subjects in my kingdom, in the garden that I am creating. That is incredible. Just, Just catch the weight of that. This is, this is a man who's guilty. He hasn't had a chance to get his act together. He hasn't had a chance to comp, you know, kind of make up for his sin. He hasn't even gotten baptized yet. He's not following the rules. And Jesus says, today you will be my intimate friend in my kingdom. That is so powerful. It reveals God's ultimate intent for all of this stuff, for his death, his resurrection, human history, is God wants us to be with him.
And he invited the most guilty, most obviously exposed person he could, the man who saw who Jesus was hanging on a cross next to him. It's the same invitation he makes to all of us today. It's the same invitation he makes to any human being who's ever experienced brokenness or sin or failure, which is all of us. But the tragedy is, is sometimes we're looking through the wrong lens and we never see it. God doesn't want our strong effort in being good. God doesn't want us to put on the mask of hypocrisy and try to cover over the bad in us. He wants all of us. He wants our lives. He wants our sin, our brokenness, our gifts, our skills, our affection. He wants all of it. Why? Because ultimately, when that you and I encounter God in that, it is paradise. We're going to share communion together in just a moment, but I want you to understand when we come to this that there's this beautiful reality of the way God works with us. You and I, when we are broken, we run. We hide. We hide in guilt and shame, and we don't want, we don't, we don't want anybody to know, and we don't want God to know, and so we live in that kind of secrecy because we are embarrassed. But God loves us so much that he will continue to pursue even when we try to hide. He'll continue to come after us because he wants to redeem our brokenness. And he will look for those who are broken. And he will reach out to them just like he did to this man on the cross. One of the things about my grandpa that I remember distinctly is my grandpa was the ultimate rehab redemption guy. He would take anything that was broken and fix it. He could. He was good with his hands. And when he was older, one of the things he took on as a hobby is that he would take bikes that people would literally throw away, and he would take them out of trash dumpsters. He'd find them wherever he could. Someone throw them in behind a bush, and then he would bring it back to his garage, and he'd work on it, and then it would come out almost looking like a brand-new bike. I was always amazed. I got one of those bikes. I remember, he found like a 10-speed that somebody had thrown away, and he got it. And I remember when he got it, I'm like, that's going to be my bike? He said, oh, yeah, just give me a little time with it, and it'll look great. And sure enough, he replaced parts that were broken, and he painted it, and that was my bike for years. It's the one I rode to school every day, and, and it was great. But one thing I remember about my grandpa is that there was no bike that was too broken, and he would go out on these walks. He lived in Van Nuys, lived near Van Nuys Airport, and he would always come back with two things, golf balls from the Van Nuys Golf Course. It was right across from that. He would have literally, he had pockets full, and bicycles. He'd always would come back and was like, how did you find that? Oh, I was looking for it, and I found it over here. And, and they'd always have another project to work on. The God of the universe goes out pursuing humanity in our brokenness. He looks for us. He hunts for us. And no matter what dumpster you find yourself in, he's still seeking after you. Some of you need to hear that today because we just talked about somebody else's sin earlier. And you know your sin may be different, but you've got issues right now and you feel like you are locked, you are stuck, you are bound, and you can't get free. The enemy wants you to believe that, but the God of the universe loves you so much. He will keep pursuing you until you come clean, until you pour yourself out to him, until you become humble and you admit what's going on in your life. And that's the first step of freedom is seeing through that lens of humility that says, okay, this is who I really am, but it's not who God wants me to be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that 
what we will celebrate this next weekend, your death on Friday, your resurrection on Sunday, speaks to us today about where we're at, not only as a church, but Lord, the church is us, the people, but where we are as individual followers of you. That you have demonstrated throughout your life and even in your death that there is something that maybe we have missed about who you are that you want us to see clearly. You want us to see from the clear side of who you are. So I pray right now, Lord, in these next few moments when we, are, we go to the, the tables and we are receiving the elements, and in fact, you will be able to do that as soon as I conclude praying. Just the worship team will go into song. You're free to go to the one of the four stations around the sanctuary and receive those elements. But Lord, we know as we, we do that, it causes us to have to think. And we know it causes us to have to remember that your death for us, your sacrifice, those elements that are symbols of your ultimate sacrifice remind us that we're not perfect, that we're broken. And because we're broken, because we've failed, because we have our own sin, you were willing to be broken and you were willing to die on our behalf so that you can break the power that sin has over us. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, in these next few moments as we receive those elements, that you would come deep within our souls and those things that need to come out. And even I'm going to encourage you as I'm praying, if there's a point of confession you need to make to somebody else in the room that you maybe trust or a family member, do it, even amongst us during communion, that it comes out so that you're asking for Jesus' forgiveness as you receive those elements because you know now you're coming clean, that the God of the universe loves you so much, he's drawing you out. In a sense, he's lovingly exposing you so that you can find freedom. Lord Jesus, would you do that by your grace today? Bring us to a place, Lord, where we are pure and right before you because, Lord, you love us so much that you will never give up on us. You will always pursue us. So, Lord Jesus, would you do that in these moments? Would you do do that for our future as we follow you and the future you have for our church? We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.